Would you all pray with me? Father God, we come before you having just sung about the fact that you are gracious to us. So Father, would you meet us with that grace today? Especially for those of us who messed it up this week, those of us who are feeling pretty crummy, those of us who have lost hope, those of us who just feel like we're never going to get better, would you today meet us in a very real and powerful way? And Father, as I, as I open up your word, as I talk about the things that you've taught me, even that you taught me last night, uh, I surrender it all to you. I ask that you would take everything that I've thought about and prepared and studied uh, and, and written, and you would, you would take it and use it uh, to speak to us, to speak whatever our hearts most need to hear today in this moment. So Father, we ask uh, that you come and you speak to us, your children, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. My, uh, my mentor, Steve Brown, tells a story about his daughter, Robin. And uh, if you know Steve, you know that he, you don't always know if the story he's telling you actually happened or if it's just like a, this, this is a good illustration. Uh, but he tells this story about Robin, and I don't know if it's true or not, uh, but I do know his daughter. Um, and so the story seems like it could be true. Uh, but it's a story from when she was in high school. And she, uh, she had signed up for an advanced English class. And she loved English. She loved literature. In fact, to this day, uh, she edits all of Steve's books. She, she's, she's in love with words. And she's very smart, very bright. But she signs up for this advanced English class. And within the first week, she drops the class. She just, she says, I, I, I can't do it. Well, the teacher knows her. And so the teacher corners her one day in the hall and asks her, why, why did you drop my class? And Robin explains to her, there's just no way. There's no way I will be able to, to do what your class requires of me. There's no way that I would be able to get uh, an A in your class. And the teacher looked at her and she said, what if I give you an A right now? What if I entered the A on your report card today in permanent ink? Would you, would you sign back up for the class? So, of course, what did she do? She signed back up for the class. Grace gives you an A in permanent ink before you've done anything to deserve it. So here's the problem with the illustration, whether it's true or not. I know at least half of us probably even more than half of us, are thinking right now, that teacher is a sucker, right? Because there's no way Robin or any of us, right, would, would work really hard if we knew we already had an A. I mean, all of us think there's no way that I would actually study as hard as I should if I already knew my A was secure. So most of us are thinking, that teacher's a sucker, right? But I know this for fact. Robin wouldn't have taken the class any other way. We're in a two-week series on grace. 
Last week, we talked about what grace is, and, and today we're going to talk about how grace works, what grace actually does. So let's go to our verse that we looked at last week, and then we're going to add the verse that follows it. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's our verse from last week. So just to recap, grace is unearned. Grace, in fact, is getting the opposite of what you deserve. This grace of God has appeared, meaning that grace isn't just an idea, it's a person, it's Jesus Christ, that offers salvation, which we talked about last week, is an exchange. So grace exchange places with us to all people. So grace is for all. No one is beyond the grace of God. So verse 12, it, it being grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is God's word. So grace teaches us godliness. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is the only thing that can teach us godliness. It's the only thing that works. I'm a big fan of Terrence Malick films, um, and he's this director who only makes a film like once every few years, um, and they're all very long, um, and they're boring, uh, but they're beautifully shot. Um, but the reason I love them is that there's always a moment in them that just hits me in the gut. I talked about his latest film, A Hidden Life, a couple months ago, uh, but the, the film that has wrecked me like no other is called The Tree of Life. And it begins with a voiceover that says this, the nuns taught us that there are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself, accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked, accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it, and love is smiling through all things. There are only two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about if I think that's true. And, uh, and as I kind of thought through what are some other ways people might go through life, uh, everything always pointed back to, to one of those two ways, the way of nature or the way of grace. So how are you going through life? Or how would others say you're going through life? Y'all, I, I have to come clean about something. Uh, last night, uh, Kelly and I went uh, to a dinner to celebrate her dad's 70th birthday, and it was all just adults. Uh, Kelly and I hardly ever uh, go out without any kids, and it was, we were so looking forward to it. It was a fun night uh, with her family. But when we got home, there was marker everywhere. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not using hyperbole. Like, there was marker on every couch cushion. There was marker on every chair. There was marker on every wall. There was marker on our TV. If you were to ask my kids last night how I'm living, they would say the way of nature. And the crazy thing is, as I was losing my ever-loving mind at them, as I was going ballistic, 
At the same time, I was thinking about the fact that I was going to be preaching this sermon today. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 7, 24, what a wretched man am I who will save me from this body that is subject to death. There's only two ways through life, the way of nature or the way of grace. And it's the way of grace that teaches us godliness. Nothing else works. Martin Luther, who you know is a hero of mine, started the Protestant Reformation. As a young man, he lived a life of, of self-denial. He was a monk. And on the outside, he looked like he was the most faithful follower of Jesus. But in reality, he hated God. He hated him. He thought that God was some kind of slave master. In fact, uh, he couldn't deny the existence of God, and so he felt like he was doomed his whole life to strive to reach some level of perfection to please what he saw as an unpleasable God. A lot of times to cope with that, he would inflict self-harm. In fact, there was one time that he went outside in, in the coldest part of winter, barely clothed, uh, he almost died. People had to bring him in. And when they, when they finally got him warmed up, they said, what in the, why were you out in the middle of the winter with hardly any clothes on? And he said, as penance for my failings. Now, you might not be as neurotic as Martin Luther. Maybe your self-harm isn't as noticeable or blatant. But my guess is I'm not the only one who struggles with self-hate for not measuring up who beats himself up for losing his temper at his kids for something that ultimately doesn't matter. Now, maybe you're not a Christian, so maybe you don't have a standard uh, from God's Word. But maybe it's the culture, right? Maybe you live in constant fear that you'll be found out at work as being a fraud or that you won't be seen as important or necessary to get the job done. Or maybe you believe the standard set for beauty or masculinity by our culture and you're, you're working so hard to achieve it. And maybe you're even having some success, but you find yourself empty and shallow. That six pack isn't loving you back. And as one who's never met my six pack, um, I imagine it would love so good. Or maybe, uh, maybe you are trying desperately to be relevant to be on top of whatever the world tells you you should be on top of right now, and you are just exhausted from always having to be on the right side of history. We're all trying to measure up to something. I spent years trying to be good and faithful on the outside, but on the inside, I was scared to death. I was scared to death of both real and imagined sins. I was scared to death that I wouldn't, be, that I wouldn't measure up, that I, that I would be rejected, that I would be found out. So last night, as I was acting so ugly uh, to my kids, and I was having this thought about having to preach today on grace, uh, I thought, there's no way, there's no way I can do this. And then you know what I heard? Zach, I'm writing the A in permanent ink. Martin Luther, what turned him around was a grace awakening. It was when he went back and, and re-looked at Paul's writings, especially in Romans, and he saw that righteousness, just like salvation, is a gift. It's, it's grace that God gives us righteousness. 
He writes this, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Martin Luther goes on to write, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. So what's he saying? What's Martin Luther saying there? He's saying that righteousness, the righteousness that God calls us to, he supplies to us through Jesus. He tells us that this righteousness is by faith. It's not earned. Essentially, Martin Luther heard Jesus say to him, I'm writing the A in permanent ink. There are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. And grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So in Les Mis, which I told you we'd come back uh, last week, uh, Les Mis remembers the story of, of really the impact of grace on one man's life. And to further uh, show the impact of grace on someone, Victor Hugo, who wrote the, who wrote the no novel, uh, creates a foil to the main character, Jean Valjean. He creates this character, this uptight, legalistic police officer by the name of Javert. It's really a tale of two ways, the way of nature and the way of grace. And if you remember last week, uh, the, the act of grace that was given uh, to Jean Valjean is when he had stolen from a priest who was showing him kindness and he was caught. The priest not only says he didn't steal, but he gives him more. He gives him candlesticks. And then he says or rather sings, and I sang last week on the video, and I've hated myself for it ever since, so I'm just going to read it. But this is what the priest says. He says, but remember this, my brother. See, in this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. Jean Valjean was not only saved by grace, but grace called him to godliness. And then the rest of the play, that's what we see. We see him live out godliness. And godliness isn't what you think. I think a lot of us have such an anemic view of godliness. Godliness is not, not cussing or spitting or chewing or smoking or drinking or going with girls who do. It's not about being a goody-goody. Jean Valjean is by no means perfect from that point on the rest of, of his life. But you can watch his life play out and you see it has been radically reoriented. His whole life from that moment forward was characterized by thinking of others. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? When the religious people wanted to know, like, what, what do we have to do? Tell us what we can do. And Jesus said, love God and love people. The whole law can be summed up with that, thinking of God and thinking of others above yourself. Godliness is characterized by disadvantaging yourself for the sake of others. 
And what can be more godly than that? That's what God did in Jesus. That is exactly what God did. He disadvantaged himself for us. Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, had them the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Godliness is disadvantaging oneself for the sake of others. And that's what you see in Jean Valjean's life. He, he adopts a young child who, who's the daughter of a prostitute who dies. We see him risk his life by joining the young rebels at the barricade, even though he's an old man. We see him, we see him uh, save his fiance, uh, uh, not his fiance. We see him save uh, the fiance of his daughter at great peril to himself. Grace worked. It radically reoriented his whole life. So has it radically reoriented yours? There are people in our life that we don't want to give grace because we don't think they deserve it. Or we're so fearful that, that they'll abuse it. Or maybe even worse, that it will keep them from repentance that it'll keep them from changing, that it will keep them from godliness. And maybe that's because we're worried grace won't work for us. But y'all, it's our only hope for godliness. This morning, I asked my kids for forgiveness because of grace. This morning, I stopped beating myself up for my ridiculous behavior because of grace. I'm preaching this sermon because of grace. Nature says you got to earn it. It says that karma will be your teacher, that karma will lead you to, to make different choices, that punishment ultimately has the power to change you. But grace says it's kindness that leads you to repentance, that leads you to change. Nature can never produce godliness. It can only produce self-righteousness. It can only lead to posturing and pretending and blame shifting. Javert is the perfect picture of someone who tried so hard to get it right, to earn it. And in the end, he despairs. In fact, he doesn't see a way out for him. He, he doesn't ever see repentance or change as a possibility. And so it ends with suicide. Only grace can produce godliness. And Paul knows this. Paul grounds godliness throughout all the letters that he writes. Not in our resolution or our will, not in our ability to cultivate proper habits or disciplines, not in us getting it right all the time, but in grace. Grace leads to new life. Paul knows that if you actually want people to live a godly life, don't emphasize the good they must do for God, but instead emphasize the good that God has done for them. In fact, after Paul writes in Titus about uh, the way that you and I should live in response to the gospel, he goes back to the gospel. In chapter 3, starting in verse 4, he says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, not, not because of anything we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing 
of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. There are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. And this dynamic is illustrated throughout the scriptures. Go all the way back to Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, um, Naomi and Ruth, Jonah and the Ninevites. We even see it between Peter and Paul when Paul has to, to rebuke Peter publicly in his letter to the Galatians saying, Peter, you're falling back into the old way. You're falling back to, to nature. You're falling back to self-righteousness. We see it in the story Jesus told of the, the two brothers in the prodigal son parable. But I think the clearest depiction of this is in that interaction with Jesus, the Pharisees, and that adulterous woman. Remember that, that, that scene? It's John 8. Jesus is teaching. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, bring this woman before him, and they say, Jesus, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. And according to the law, she should be stoned. So what do you say? And then we're told Jesus bends down, he starts writing something in the sand, he stands up, he looks at these religious men, and he says, whichever one of you is without fault, you throw the first stone. And then we're told he bends back down and he continues to write. Now we don't know what he wrote. We have no idea but what he wrote. But we know whatever he wrote, he caught them. He caught them just like they caught her. And how did these religious men respond to being caught? We're told one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away, starting with the older ones. Why did the Pharisees walk away? Because they knew they were guilty. They were caught. They knew they had sinned. They knew they had violated God's law. And so they left. And they left making a promise to themselves and to God that next time they would do better. They chose the way of nature, of law, of self-righteousness when the way of grace was standing right in front of them. What if, they, what if they had stayed? What if they hadn't left? What if they had stayed right there with Jesus? They would have seen Jesus look into this woman's eyes and say, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she would respond, no one, sir. But Jesus is still there. He was the only one left because he was the only one without sin. And what does he say in return to her? Nor do I condemn you. And then he says, go and do not sin. What is Jesus saying to her? He's saying, I'm writing the A in permanent ink. He didn't say, leave your life of sin, prove that you've really had a change of heart and I won't condemn you. He says, you aren't condemned. You got the A. Now don't sin. Maybe a better illustration would have been if one of Robin's fellow classmates, maybe the top of, of the class, maybe the one that was destined to be the valedictorian, the one uh, who was definitely getting a scholarship to an Ivy League school. If that student came to Robin when she dropped the class and said, listen, 
you can have whatever grade I earn in this class. And I'll take whatever grade you earn. When Jesus said to this woman, nor do I condemn you, he knew that the stones would be thrown. But he was saying, let them hit me. He knew that blood would be spilt, but he said, let it be mine. He knew her sin was going to cost him. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a free gift to us because it cost him everything. There are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. Steve says the only people who ever get better are the people who know if they never get better. God will still love them. And by the way, Robin did earn an A in that class. If you listen to what I told you today, if you actually see what Jesus has done, you will too. And if you don't, it's all about grace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, for the reality uh, that grace is our teacher. That in fact, it is grace that leads us to godliness. And Father, I know I'm not the only one who continues to go back to striving for godliness in my own effort. Father, thank you for the constant reminder in your scripture that it's a gift. That, that in fact, if we're struggling with doing the right thing, if we're struggling with obedience, if we're struggling with godliness, why not just ask you for it? You freely gave us salvation. How will you not also freely give us godliness? Father, I ask that you would continue to work in my heart and the hearts of those uh, that have just listened to this, that you would continue to expose areas in our heart that need to be trained, that need to be taught by grace so that we can look a lot more like who you say we are. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.